Hey folks, I want to give a big shout out to everybody who is supporting the Patreon because what they're really doing is they're supporting accessibility when it comes to this podcast. The money that comes from that is used in part to provide transcriptions for every episode so that anybody who would rather read the interviews for whatever reasons is able to do so and allows these great conversations to reach a wider audience and those who otherwise might be unable to uh, get the benefits of that material. So a big thank you. And of course, there's also a bonus in it for them, which is they get access to all sorts of great private material that only shows up in that space, including related to this episode, our feminist playlist of music that has inspired the Stacking Skulls and Brianna Saucy uh, over the years. So all of that can be found over at patreon.com slash the hermit's lamp or follow the links in the show notes. As they say, every dollar helps and it all goes towards something that I feel is deep and important. Welcome everybody to another installment of the Hermit's Lamp podcast. I am here today with Peter Jenks. And uh, for those who don't know Peter Jenks, uh, he is the author of a massive and intriguing tome called Thai Occult. And it's, uh, it's really interesting to uh, meet with somebody and talk with uh, people who are involved in non-Western cultures and other ways of practicing magic that don't kind of come out of you know, say the Golden Dawn or Wicca or these other things, which are all lovely. Um, but I think it's really interesting to get a, a dive into, you know, other kinds of worldviews and magic and all of those things. Um, so really, that's why, uh, you know, when Peter and I connected, I thought it'd be a great fit for being on the show. Um, but for those who don't know you, Peter, who who are you? Um, well, I'm an I'm a aging Englishman sat in Chiang Mai at the moment. Um, uh, been here, been living in Thailand since 2002, but first visited here in 1991, which is kind of before its main economic explosion and everything else. And then um, come from a musical background, well, working in music in Manchester, worked, worked a lot with gigs, run rather interesting nightclubs uh, in Manchester and also been a practitioner of Tai Chi for like 20 years. So um, I think everything's always pulled me east, mm -hmm. which is why really the first, on the first visit, I kind of knew I'd end up living here. Mm. It fits. Yeah, it's interesting how that works, right? You know, I was talking with somebody yesterday about... Uh, you know, I, I come from a Scottish background, even though I was born and raised in Toronto. And they're like, oh, well, have you been to Scotland? I'm like, no, I haven't. I I mean, I'm curious, but I find I'm much more drawn to the East, you know. And uh, I spent a bit of time in Thailand and a chunk of time in India. And, you know, I was in China last year. And mm -hmm. every time I return to the East, I always have this sense of uh, ease that emerges that's quite different than what I experience you know, living living in Toronto, it's it's like there there are these places and cultures that are suited to our nature in ways that we might not even be able to explain or understand. You know, well, I think it's, it's one. I think at first when we come here, we are given space, and mm. it's a space that we're not necessarily given in the West. Also, what I experienced when I first came here was a realization that what I'd always felt regarding nature and regarding what I perceive as magic in the West um, was correct. It, because here it is expressed in a, in a much deeper way than it is uh, in England in particular. Mm. Um, I don't know. They, it, and I also I think you know, we need the strangeness to grow. Mm. Yeah, and sometimes uh, part of any growth, as far as I'm concerned, is the process of change. And if you go to an alien culture, you are constantly challenged to change. And that can be astonishingly refreshing for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can see and, that for sure. And also that, that idea, uh, you know, I mean, 
there 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 are other ways of looking at the world and nature you know i mean this the the word animism has been you know being kicked around a lot and sort of uh gained a lot of ground as sort of a word for some of the kind of worldview that we might be talking about and mm. you know i think that that's that's both part of it you know for me going there going to other places and you know and my involvement in uh and, and initiation in Afro-Cuban Lakumi, mm. there there is there is this sort of worldview at play where plants plants are alive and have have energies and consciousness, and you know there's this interconnectedness between everything that isn't really common even amongst magical practitioners, at least in my experience, kind of growing up. Yeah, yeah, it's one of those. <laughs> You know, the funny thing is, okay, I had to isolate myself to do this book. I have not been able to read other bo other magical books at all. Mm. Otherwise, it would have kind of diluted or influenced what I was going to do. The whole time I've spent here has been really a time to learn how not to think and influence what is around you. And if you do that, you gain the natural focus that comes with the occult practices of this land. Mm -hmm. And that allows the nature to come through. But I always perceived this as just the Thai occult. Everybody else calls it Thai animism. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I'm just getting used to the fact that it is probably animism. But everybody, all the people I deal with it, deal with, all refer to it as an occult practice. But as an animist practice, it dates back thousands of years and it is uninterrupted. Now, that's quite rare in the world, as mm -hmm. far as I know. I haven't studied anything else in depth deliberately. Mm -hmm. And because of that, um, the depth of the, what I've been able to write about and the depth of understanding that is available is really off the planet, as yeah. far as I'm concerned. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's such a difference between... Um you know, living, living practices that date way back, you know, uh, mm. you know, with, with the, um, with the Afro-Cuban Lakumi stuff and Orisha tradition, it's one of those things where when we start talking about divination in those systems, often people are, are quite astounded. And I know I was really astounded at, uh, the kinds of things that are included in the, the, the wisdom and specificity and, and all of these kinds of things. Mm. And, you know, it's, in the end, the explanation is simple. You've had a lot of very uh, deep, intelligent, mystical people pondering the human condition and connecting to the spirit world for thousands of years and passing yeah. on that information and allowing it to accumulate. And it provides such a deep insight into human, you know, human nature and human problems because, you know, although, although the nature of the problems changes with modernity and, and so on. The nature of being human really doesn't, I don't think. Well, that actually depends on the culture, though, because if you look at the, the, the Thai system, mm -hmm. the things that it offers are the things that people of this region require. Right. So, uh, you know, this has been a very dangerous region over the thousands of years. Um, they've been lucky enough to have the influence of Buddhism, which always overrides ancient animist practices. So things can they can remain who they are while attaining a higher spirituality, if that makes sense. Yeah. And really, because of you know the rough nature of the living in the wilds and the constant wars in the region, most of the things that they have worked out to offer and create for their devotees are related to protection in many forms, impenetrable skin, invincibility, um, ways to bounce back black magic, ways to change your fate, ways to attract people, ways to become popular, ways to gain good fortune. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's all about but at the core of it all, it's actually all about the person as well, because they're being given an advantage that they've got to work with. So it's not just abracadabra, like, wow, okay, now you're popular. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, they might give you the attributes of being popular, but if you're a bit of a twat, it's not going to work. Right. So everything that they create 
is all about the development of the person of the person themselves being given an advantage that they have to grow into, mm-hmm. which is typical of what we were talking about earlier, whereby the constant process of change is also can be, we go backwards sometimes, can be the process to either becoming a better person or more magical or however you want to see it. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And throughout the thousands of years that they developed it here, they've discovered what is actually supernatural in nature. And they have their own versions of it. Which, how the hell they discover that, I don't know. But, you know, special people discover special things. They discover what uh, human products they can use for rather powerful spells. They discover all the plants mm-hmm. independently, often, mm-hmm. of other cultures. So, like, the I posted uh, a picture of a particular tree that has that produces a particular wood that the Thais use in many magical amulets called Mudam. And in their legends, it's the tree that you climb to get out of hell because it's impossible to climb because of huge spikes on the trunk. Mm. And it was possibly it was a fantastic discussion ensued because it was also a magical wood in pretty much every other system that I was in contact with at that time through the Facebook page. Mm-hmm. And the incredulity of that between everybody was really rather wonderful. Mm-hmm. You know, it kind of just pulled everybody together. Well, and, and to um, me, that's, that's animism, right? That's the yeah. tree telling you what it wants to do, right? You know, yeah. and telling everybody see, like the same thing. It's like, hey, I, I can help you with this thing, you know, if you work with me. You know, and that's that's what's really profound about these things, I think. Yes, very much so. It's um, and the more kind of I've learned about things, you know, we were just we were discussing. Um, I put a post in earlier about lightning and how lightning can make things magical. Mm-hmm. And you know, I was chatting with a particular learner, a jam from a very old lineage called the jam Sura, jam tiger. Um, with the help of my partner, of course. And he was telling me, really, that if a lightning strikes a tree, its use depends on the effect of the lightning on the tree. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, if it blows off the bark in the middle, that area is used for the handles of magical knives. Mm. If it strikes another area of the tree, it's used for something else. So, depending even on how a supernatural occurrence like a lightning strike hits something, it can produce all sorts of different results. And yeah, at the time we were having this chat, it was really rather mind-blowing yeah, mm-hmm. that people have spent generations upon generations studying the effects of these uh, supernatural occurrences. Yeah. Well, I think that it's so foreign to people living in cities you know, but I mean, when you start spending time in nature and start mm-hmm. consistently spending time in nature, you know, it really, um, it really can start to speak to you after a while, right? You know, I yeah, spent, um, there was a, a site where we used to go and do uh, ceremonies uh, every month for uh, almost two years. And um, kind of towards the end of that time, I did a 10 day retreat by myself where I just, hung out in the woods and fasted and and did my own rituals and stuff like that and the the amount of things that i learned from that land and from the plants and the the kinds of things that got revealed to me and even even just like um sort of unexpected beautiful things you know there's this uh cherry tree and you know i knew it was cherry tree we'd seen the flowers it was beautiful and so on um, but the thing that was amazing, because I was there all day, every day for that period of time, when when I was there, the sap was coming out. And so mm-hmm. there were these little um, reddish golden amber blobs on the tree from the sap emerging. And yeah. the tree was in the west from where we where I usually was. And when I looked up towards sunset, all of those were glowing like a stained glass window, Right. And so, 
there there are these these moments of profound beauty and and profound transference of information and where those those plants can speak to you and if you're around them all the time then and you're and you're paying attention then you get to notice them right well it's the attention that's the thing and this is why i think in the modern world governments are terrified of nature Mm. because it pulls people away from what they want to do yeah the people to do you know and mm-hmm. um, to be a good little drone and all the all the other sayings that we can come out with rather pithily yeah but um you know it's and even uh, the med- the medical community is now turning around and saying look you know to fight depression just go and walk in, just go and walk in the hills go mm-hmm. and sit in the forest for you sure know, but ain't, this kind of you know i'm lucky enough to be of an age where it was more of a natural world at the time and uh, this is, you know, it makes me kind of put my head in my hands that people are having to be reminded to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the the beauty that is available and the wealth that is available is astonishing. Since we moved to Chiang Mai, me and my partner have been round looking at various, some of the interesting spiritual caves in this region. Mm. And, you know, I'll, if we have time when people visit, I might take them to one or two. But there's one that I've already decided, I think there's only one or two people I'll take to that particular one. It's too wild. Mm. And if you, you know, if we spend the time like you have to be able to still the mind yeah. and treat ourselves to a little bit of solitude... We start to see these things, you know, yeah. and they, they become more special. Mm-hmm. Well, and I also think that we really need to um, understand and respect, you know, re- like if we're gonna gonna go into the real wilderness, you know, or real uh, you know spots in nature, you know, it's it's something quite different, right? You know, in, yeah. in again in my in my tradition. Um, the the real woods you know like like not just like a couple of plants around your yard or the park but but the actual forest is a place that's somewhat feared by practitioners not not in a that sounds wrong it's a place that's deeply respected because it's known that's, to be yeah. a place of power and because yeah. it's a place of power it's also a place of danger you know mm. and so you make offerings to make sure that you're protected while you're there. You make offerings maybe when you leave to make sure that nothing you didn't want comes with you. Uh, yeah. You know, you make, if you're going to take anything, then you make offerings to the plants that you're going to take from, you know. And, uh, you know, it's it's so rare for a lot of us to have contact with that deep wilderness, you know. It's, um, it's something completely foreign and and it's it's astounding, right? Well, it's, yeah, usually at least once or twice a month, I end up going off with an ajan often to graveyards for mm-hmm. graveyard ceremonies, yeah. um, which I'm starting to document more fully. And, you know, watching the ajan go into, I always call it ajan world. Yeah. And, uh, and by, yeah. I, what's what's a good translation for ajan? Is teacher. practitioner, teacher, yeah. Well, Ajahn is a high, higher teacher, mm-hmm. yeah, but okay. it's more than that. Yeah, it's uh, an occultist, really. Yeah. Um, and watching them deal with what is there and become open to what is there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I asked uh, Ajahn Sir, and I've also asked Ajahn Apichai, you know, often they go there to choose a ghost to do a particular task. Mm-hmm. And to which Ajahn Apichai would you know, often say, well, we've come to this graveyard because it's a graveyard where there are many soldiers and police. Right. So I normally, he said he normally tries to choose um, a good-natured ghost so they don't come home with you, mm-hmm. even though he has strong protection. Yeah. Um, and the deal is made, you know, to reward the spirit when the job is done. And he knows... He can tell within 5% really how effective that particular spirit's going to be. And sometimes he will go back and repeat or just say, no, it's worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
And then you go with Ajahn Sur, and the same questions will be, you know, uh, Ajahn likes to choose what are called uh, Pitai Hong ghosts, um, which are the ghosts of people who died violently mm. uh, before their time. And again, um, he said some of them are really quite lovely. And, you know, we were standing uh, just in the graveyard doing a love ritual, pulling a, a separated couple back together. And um, he's calling, he slaps on the side of the uh, cremation pit. It's just two walls to focus the, the heat in mm -hmm. to be able to burn the body fully in the open, in a, in a, a bit of a wood. And um, he's calling ghosts, and there, you know, it was the time of year when leaves are on the floor. Um, the leaves shed up here, some trees, and uh, you could hear the uh, something walking towards us, you know, from a particular direction. So he called that ghost over and came to a deal. And he said, "Oh, it's been successful." They said, and "I'll come back in in a few days and bring the offering that I promised, and I will donate merit." Um, and merit is something we gain it's a Buddhist, Thai Buddhist principle where we gain merit through good deeds, helping people a basic form of it would be giving to charity and you know these uh, Pitai Hongos need to collect merit to get out of hell mm. to eventually try and rise towards um, rebirth and Ajahn Su is very careful about the ghosts he chooses. He, he never forces them. He requests. He's very gentle. Otherwise, they can hurt you. Yeah? Mm -hmm. And then when we get back, uh, both of the Ajahns will always bless water, splash on feet, hands, top of head, back of neck, uh, just to make sure nothing has been clingy. Mm -hmm. you know? So, I mean, they all follow similar patterns where you know and if anything's taken you request it to be taken and if you're going to work with anything you ask it permission mm -hmm. and it's it's extremely similar all around the world except for the cultural differences yeah and the influences like in this region of buddhism has been a particular influence mm -hmm. yeah so I have so many questions. So many questions. <laughs> um, I, I guess one of my one of my questions, though, coming out of what you just talked about, we talked about you mentioned uh, somewhere along the way uh, changing your fate, right? And I'm yes. really curious about the the idea of fate as it as it exists in this practice. You know, can you wow, okay? Can you just answer that small question for us? Tell us what that's like. <laughs> well, the idea of fate is. Um, without, I don't study Horasat, which is Thai astrology, mm -hmm. okay? But what I would say is that I think the Thai occult responds to people's states of mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah? And help to get people out of a state of mind to improve themselves again, as well as realigning their fate. There's a dual motion going on here. Mm -hmm. where we are given a Qatar, we have to make offerings, we have to take care of something, we have to structure our lives around it, we have to take the five precepts, which are the basic things, don't kill anybody, stop shagging around, don't lie, you know, etc., etc. Mm -hmm. um, and often, besides the help of something like Rahu, which uh, the Thai Rahu is not the same as the Indian one, but uh, we praise it in a different way, which really annoys the Indians. Right. Uh, uh, and we gain his help. Now, uh, if to do that, we have to order our lives around it. So I think it's a dual road of choosing a better path, choosing the help of somebody who is uh, smart enough and spiritual enough to help you, mm -hmm. and then structuring your life in a different way. Uh, the Rahu is considered to raise your general level of good fortune. And Rahu is, is what exactly? Rahu is the god that eats the sun okay. or the moon yep. from Indian mythology. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is is the god of eclipses. Okay. But uh, in India, they do not praise him. They're trying to get rid of him. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah. And they think it's horrific that Thai people praise Rahul. But it, usually they often consider that a, a period of very bad fortune is sometimes Rahul coming into somebody's lives and influencing it without being asked to come in. Mm. So by praising him, you're going to offer um, uh, uh, your foods, the correct foods, which always have to be black in either numbers of 7, 9 or 15, depending on the ajan, different mm. black foods. Uh, usually on the four quarters of the moon, with the full moon being the most important. Um, normally it's advised to wear the Rahu on the full moon, in which case he kind of feels like he's bouncing around on your chest like going to a disco. Um, he's, he, he's extremely rewarding. Mm. Many Ajans swear by Rahu, but he takes a lot of work. Right. So I think it's a dual, being very honest about this, I think it's a dual combination whereby we get our shit together and then the help offered by the Rahu, offered by the Ajahn, will start to improve the life. Mm. And and when we're talking about fate here, are we talking mm. about, um, yeah, I mean, we can be a little simplistic to maybe forward the conversation. Are we talking Please. about it as a, <laughs> as a sense of um, karma like consequences for our actions this life other lives or whatever are we talking about like a, a destiny or a thing that we're sort of came intact from somewhere or, or that we need to try and achieve maybe in our life well we always have influence i think there's three forms of influence on the brain mm -hmm. okay there's three forms of influence we consider to be three forms of influence from life one is an astrological influence astrology yeah. influences the person without any doubt at all yeah mm -hmm. the second one in Thai is the influence of ghosts okay yeah and spirits directing your life without you knowing about it yeah and the third one is the influence of the mind and all the silly things that the mind does are, can be destructive mm -hmm. yeah? yeah if you uh, everybody goes through a period of bad fortune but they can have very very different reasons uh, sometimes, even in, in the Thai practices, you know, we can have a real crash of fortunes. But I always just see it as it's just a part of life, man. It can't be good all the time. Yeah. Yeah, it's a readjustment of yourself and of your the way you deal with yourself. Mm -hmm. I don't like to involve things like karma. I'm very practical in that respect. Yeah. It's, it's about living an open and happy life. And sometimes shit goes wrong. Yeah. 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 In, in, uh, in the, everything else. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, through bereavement and through everything else, but that period, then we have to kind of realign ourselves. I think focusing in on what has actually caused the problem is one of the things that we need to get away from and just deal with the fact mm. that we're in the shit. Yeah. 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 And so that also immediately stops all the stuff that goes around in the brain, or at least helps with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. In the in uh, the Lukumi divination, we have uh, a kind of negativity which we uh, call otanawa, which means uh, r roughly means that which you brought with you from heaven, and it's just like it's like yeah, this is a thing that's that's uh, was was you know you can't do anything about. Maybe it's part of your destiny. Maybe it's just come from uh, come to a place where the various forces in your life make this inevitable. But now you yeah. need to just you know uh, appease it, ease it, support yourself, and get through it. And then yeah. you know, but there's no making it go away, right? Like you know, there, there's no perfect road, right? Where where we never. Well, there can't be. Otherwise, we get so spoiled that the smallest pebble on the road would become an absolute nightmare if you got into our shoe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's you know we need it. We need these things to happen in life, in my opinion. Otherwise, mm -hmm. we don't have any understanding of what life is or can be about. Mm -hmm. And you also. Know, well, I also think it's really interesting that um, the idea of uh, easing the mind by stopping asking why and looking to explain it. You know, I think that that's a, a place where a lot of people, you know, I mean, I read cards for people. And, you know, there's certainly yeah. folks who come in for card readings who are just like, but why? Why did this happen? Why did this happen? It's like, what is, at a certain point, what does it matter? How about you do this to make it better? You know? 
And, yeah. uh, you know, it's that, that practicality that I think is um, sometimes very unsatisfying to to people in certain situations, you know? Well, it's a Western thing. Our minds are way too busy. Mm-hmm. You know, I live, you know, one of the core elements of uh, Thai culture is Samati, which is that is gained through Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Yeah? It is an open and clear focus whereby we're trying to separate ourselves from the mind. So you end up in a position where you can watch your mind being a bastard. Yeah. yeah? Or being a bit barmy one day. Mm-hmm. Yeah? So eventually when you actually, you know, but I always ask people, what is watching the mind? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what you're, in my opinion, what you are doing and what you are going to learn to do is to find out who you are, which is not often what your mind is. For sure. You know, even in our, even in our culture, we have sayings like, "What does your stomach tell you?" Mm-hmm. It's, it's not sayings. What you, what does your mind tell you? They will say, "What do you think?" Yeah. Mm-hmm. So one of the aims is to eventually secure yourself. And then when you get to that point, you can start to see or feel astrological influences. Mm -hmm. You can have an idea about whether you're being influenced by something else. And you can have an idea and you can watch your mind and and attempt to try and calm it down so it doesn't cause as much trouble. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and all these are core practices within Buddhism and Eastern philosophies. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that that ability to um, step back from what's going on in in your head and basically be like, oh, look at that. My brain is my brain is doing this thing in the same way that my stomach might be doing another thing, and my, you know, my knee might be acting up or whatever. It's like I'm not any of those <laughs> things, right? Yeah. But but sort of tuning tuning down the 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 emotions and the and the mind to kind of a place of somewhat lesser value or more specific value than the sort of overriding quality that we often associate with them. You know, that's, mm. that's not easy, right? That's for a lot of people. Uh, especially you know, if, you, if you ever visit, uh, one, of the exam- one of the wonderful things to do is to go and see someone like a dancer mm-hmm. who was a monk for 18 years. So this guy's got focus. Yeah? yeah. And recently we went along with somebody who wanted a head tattoo. Okay. A head yam for metta, yeah, for loving kindness. Mm-hmm. Higher, the highest of the high Buddhist style tattoos. Yeah, you know, head tattoos hurt. Yeah, I yeah? can imagine. And this was done. This is done with a gun. It's not a dancer can only use a gun because he's got uh, an arm that won't do as it's told. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, the the lad doing it eh, had great difficulty controlling the screaming. Mm-hmm. And I was I was helping out. Um, being a bit of an assistant and uh, I was watching Ajahn and he just went into his quiet place and not thought with no thinking he was just chanting kata while he was doing the inside while doing uh, while performing this tattoo which took way longer than um, the recipient really wanted it to <laughs> um, <laughs> And he pretty much screamed all the way through. So when we left, and then the worst thing was that if you have a tattoo with a dancer, he will then give you his yang crew, which is he gives to everybody he gives tattoos to. And it's a line of script going along the thumb line at the bottom of the palm. And man, it's painful. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Yeah. And as soon as, he, as soon as he said to me in Thai, oh, just hold his hand, I thought, oh, my God, he's really going to scream now. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, he did. He really let go. Yeah. And then when and then <laughs> when we left, Adam, after about ten minutes, the guy just lit up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he got the sun inside his face, and he actually said, "Wow, now I know why I've had it done. I wasn't so sure for the last half an hour." <laughs> yeah. um, and he looked amazing, mm-hmm. and we're actually leaving. But then once we left. Um, uh, Ajahn's neighbours from across the road came over to see him to make sure everything was <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, Ajahn is such a sweet man. He kept stopping and going, "Su su," uh, which means you know you have to fight a little bit. But doing it in such a cute way, it was like mm. an anime, you know. Yeah. And watching 
him not be drawn into somebody else's pain, not be influenced by somebody who was having difficulty and retaining his own presence was a lesson in itself. Mm -hmm. It was quite astonishing. It was an amazing 30 minutes. It's... um... It's it's such a I mean I hear in that story what I would call a, a profound sense of compassion that doesn't yes. match what what we normally you know people might go to as a sense of compassion which is uh, a sense of that deeper purpose of what's at hand uh, a, a loving acknowledgement of the struggle and yeah. a commitment to the outcome that was what what was meant to like what was agreed to um, as yes. opposed to an avoidance of uh, a kind of suffering for that person, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And also, when he finished the tattoo, um, Ajahn told him, instead of keeping the five precepts, he only has to keep one. He said, but you keep this precept. And when he told him the one, I'm not going to say which one it is, I'm not going to divulge anything about Mm -hmm. what he said, but he said, how does he choose the most difficult one he could possibly choose for me. I said, oh, he always does that. Of course. I said, otherwise, what's the point? Mm-hmm. And the guy just fell around laughing. You know, he said, how does he know? I said, well, he's, a, he's in a jam, my friend. Yeah. He probably knew as soon as you walked in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, it was, again, one of those comical moments when... You know, we realize how much we have to grow in the situation we are in. But the levels of, of metta, loving kindness, and the beauty of what they are trying to do is, is just breathtaking. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I guess let me ask this question. Uh, and, and I imagine there might be a few different answers to it, but how does, how does a person become an Ajahn? And the usual route. Okay, there's, uh, from what I can see at the moment, and this is going to change over time mm-hmm. as the more time I spend with them. But basically, everybody starts off as being some sort of devotee, uh, using their amulets, learning the katar, mm-hmm. um, becoming kind of known as somebody who makes an effort mm. towards their spiritual practices. They might go off and do few weeks or a month or even three months as a monk mm-hmm. yeah and um, which is all set up within the community and uh, most Thai men will be a monk at some point in their life for a mm-hmm. short period of time um, and then they may start helping the Ajahn with rituals and uh, helping the people who visit the Samnak which is the place of work mm-hmm. it's like his spiritual shop his temple Um, then um, the studying begins now the studying we discovered has actually got levels Uh, and each level it's a bit like going and getting different degrees each level has got what is called the cam crew associated with it and the cam crew is a construction of various objects like sometimes swords sometimes flags now they're always quite different a lot of betel nuts uh, flowers it depends on the lineage of the ajan that's giving it and there are various levels of the crew depending on what you study so the earlier levels tend to be directed towards satyam the Thai traditional tattooing after which you tend to learn about sane, sane magic, which is the magic for attraction. Eventually, I'm trying to remember the levels, it's something like the 8, 12, 27, but it ends up at 108. There's, many, there's about eight different levels of the Kankru. Mm-hmm. And at each level, you attain a certain understanding but the camp crew is actually considered to be alive. Mm-hmm. It's considered to have life, and it helps you, teach you, and it can also knock you back if you're not studying enough or being erudite enough or trying enough or you're just getting it wrong. 
Yeah. Right. Um, so I, it's way like everything in this system. Um, the book kind of introduces the subject of the can crew, but the can crew in itself could probably be a book on its own. Mm-hmm. Ajahn Sir holds the can crew 108, which is the full Wicca, which comes from a similar root word as Wiccan, by the way. The mm-hmm. Wicca is the knowledge um, of a very famous monk called Krubadundi, who's still alive, but he's bedridden at 105. And um, his Witcher collection, his book collection, is really quite something mm-hmm. off the planet, and his knowledge to go along with it. When he was a monk, it, he had the Can Crew 227, which only monks can have. And then you go back to the 108 when you stop being a monk. Okay. So, you know, often you're going to see. Uh, in the Jan Sur's Samnak, there's one can crew, and it's 108, everything. And there are a certain colour to show that his teacher is still alive, and they change the colour when he dies. Hmm. In other Samnaks, you go, and they all have like five or six can crew for different subjects from different Ajans. Hmm. Yeah, So you have some that stick to a certain lineage, and some that go around collecting different with chats to almost like create their own lineage to start their own path right which then they can help other people along as well it involves learning at least three scripts it involves learning a an enormous amount of qatar understanding the qatar and it involves um practices such as uh various meditational practices like the 32 parts of the body practice for which you need a teacher but there's a brief outline in the book of it whereby we get to know our physical body by traveling around it Mm. yeah and it's split into 32 parts there is also various meditational practices towards putting four elements within the body but all these kind of roll along through the different levels of study hmm. and so is the is the title conferred by the teacher then at some point is that the, the teacher decides when you move to the next level hmm. to become an ajan you know you can say i could now turn around and say i'm a jan hmm. i'm an ajan but i'd be a bit of an idiot to do so because it's really obvious that i'm not right yeah yeah in the same way as mastership in martial arts yeah, yeah you always get there's always a number of pillocks who call themselves a master and they have to go through the very painful process of being beaten up by an eight-year-old at some point you mm-hmm. know what i mean yeah yeah so similar you prove yourself by being good at your job mm-hmm. that's interesting i also i'm also really fascinated by i mean we were talking about nature earlier um mm. Do, do the Ajans, like, are there any living, like, do they practice in Bangkok, in the center of town? Are they out yes, in the they woods? Do. Yeah? No, no, yes, they do. There is, There are some remarkable magicians in Bangkok. Mm-hmm. Normally, they will deal with the things that people who live in the metropolis need. They'll help them with promotion at work. They'll help them find a lover. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and be more attractive. Um there, there is uh, there's one Ajahn called Ajahn Weeratev who's now very famous mm-hmm. he's the first photograph in the book um, yeah. and he's he's got very rich clientele that he does spiritual work for mm-hmm. whatever that may entail yeah? some of it will be aggressive, some of it will be protective, some of it you know, mm-hmm. because in Thailand basically it's really the rich and the poor that use magic Right. Not necessarily the middle classes, mm. yeah. Yeah, um, and there's also people like Ajahn Samat, who is one of the most remarkable Satyana Jams I've ever met. Man, he has it. He mm-hmm. has it. Yeah, um, and for me, he's the best Satyana Jam in Bangkok. But he's difficult to see. He has a mostly Thai clientele. His work is not beautiful. It's very old style. It's very ancient witcher. Mm. But man, he has it. Ooh. 
you know so all these things are available for people who need it mm -hmm. finding the very traditional Thai ones will only be done by the Thai people mm. but then there are other ones who become famous outside the country as well so let me ask you this question then so where does where does morality fit in these kinds of practices you know in what respect so um if if someone's coming to have work done to bring uh, a relationship back together, yeah. is that is that uh, seen as both people should be there and consent? Is it seen as uh, one person who who wants this to happen can do the work and and that could work? You know, we talk about defense and aggression and and these other kinds of things. Is is there a morality in there, or is that sort of purely a well, Western question and not even relevant? It's, well, there's a morality in everything in life. It just, it just depends on your personal standpoint. Mm -hmm. yeah? um, many Ajans nowadays, a lot of the really heavy stuff has gone back in the cupboard because it's not needed anymore. Right. Yeah. So, but like say Ajan Kao, who's a, a particularly lovely Ajan who I get along very well with in uh, towards Doisaket, the mountains to the east. Mm hmm uh, he only pulls lovers back together who were already married and they have to prove it to him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, He will ask them for impossible things to get. You know, if they can, the skin off the bottom of his foot or her foot, depending on which partner wants the other partner to come back. Right. Um, and he will help them get back together because that is an act of meta. He is helping keep a couple together. At the same time, he will basically attempt to get the person who is bringing the uh, paying for the ritual to understand that all the ritual does is bring them back. It's not going to fix your relationship problems. So mm. if you turn around and be angry, it's not going to keep them there. This is not making a slave out of somebody. Right. Yeah? Mm -hmm. So... There isn't really anything aggressive within that. I mean, really, you know, people often ask the question, what is black magic in Thailand? You know, yes, there might be, you get a different answer from everybody. Sure. But when they ask the same Ajahn, Ajahn always said, well, you know, attraction. He said, I might use part of somebody's skull for attraction. Yes, an A, we call it. Mm -hmm. Um, he said, but it's just an air magic. It's, it's, it's not black magic. He said, you're just attracting somebody. Where's the harm in that? Mm -hmm. You're not kind of turning them into a slave. You're just attracting them. Right. Yeah, the work yeah. isn't... Whereas other people... The work isn't geared Sorry. towards removing people's free will. The work is geared exactly. towards providing opportunity, opportunity. Yes. and yes and that opportunity especially sort of based on what you said in the pre earlier part of the conversation too that opportunity is both uh access to the opportunity of that thing and also the opportunity to grow as a person to embody that thing exactly yeah yeah so you know but other people think that just the use of any human materials is black magic in itself sure which yeah. i don't i don't consider it to be mm -hmm. you know uh, there's all sorts of things. I will not get into the entire thoughts about death because, yeah. you know, everybody does. They're not bothered, you know, it's just part of life. Sure, yeah. Um, generally, most Summerjans think that anything with human materials is black magic. Summerjans only think that anything that is forceful is black magic. Mm. Um, anything that is cursing is black magic. And they really try not to do it nowadays. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they will do something called a com ritual, which is a ritual. It's like a controlling ritual that you do in a graveyard, and it's to rebalance some sort of relationship, like work relationship. Your boss is being a bit of a bastard to you, etc. Mm -hmm. um, you'll bring a com ritual just to slap him a little bit, slap him down for a few months, let the relationship become better between you. Mm. Yeah. Um, and then it wears off yeah? and they are extremely effective these mm -hmm. but then you know you get people coming forward wanting people hurt or 
dead or forced into bankruptcy or something serious. Yep. And to be honest, nowadays, yes, it can be done, but most of Jans will say no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the only and there's some very knowledgeable people about cursing in this city. Yeah. Terrifyingly knowledgeable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they just choose not to do it unless it's a, unless they, it's for the right reason. Yeah. Because you know they're bringing, they're forcing something. They're bringing something difficult to themselves mm-hmm. at the same time. And everybody nowadays is now trying to strike the correct balance. Mm-hmm. And do you do you see that shift as um, coming out of a, a shift in cultural values, or is it a shift in the difference in the the quality of life now versus in the past? Uh, it's both. Yeah. You know, uh, the government's also uh, 10 or 15 years ago, they started clamping down. They started stopping people who had died violently being mm-hmm. buried. Yeah, originally, only uh, anybody who died a difficult death, mm-hmm. which basically reflects like as a really bad karma. Um, was buried. Everybody mm. else was burned. Right. Yeah? So these ground, and they're exactly the people that the Ajans want to use the uh, products from. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and they basically stopped doing that 10 to 15 years ago. So mm. slowly but surely, that source is being exhausted. You know, Thailand is becoming a very developed country. Mm-hmm. Access to the uh, human materials is becoming extremely difficult mm-hmm. and you know it's not as wild here as it used to be people need more less protection in many ways more meta more mm-hmm. semi because now you know the times have changed gone are the days where they could just chop you know somebody a, a corpse's head off and leave a watermelon in its place right you know, now they believe that a better protection is to have so much meta that somebody doesn't want to hurt you anyway. Mm. Is to be such a lovely person that attracts other people, it makes you difficult to attack. Mm. You know, so as cultures develop, the way they use their magical knowledge develops, which is actually the sign of any living form of magic, isn't it? Mm. Well, it's, uh, it reminds me of martial arts practice, right? You know, I mean... A lot of people start off in, you know, something a little harder like, you know, karate or whatever. And, you know, they want to fight and, and use their muscles and whatever. And as you, uh, you know, hopefully as you age and, and get a little wiser, you know, you move to something more circular and more soft. And, you know, yeah. you, like, you know, not that, not that you can't, you know, throw that punch if you need to. But it's often more like, oh, I can just redirect this and just flow with things in a completely different manner. And therefore, oh, I, I won't know, have that problem anymore. I always, I always recommend running away. It's fucking great for avoiding problems. Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Just, and also, just, just don't be there in the, the first great, place, right? Exactly. The yeah. greatest defense. I mean, this is not counting somebody who comes up being an absolute idiot. Yeah. In which case, finish it and then run away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I've done martial arts for 20 years. Yeah. Uh, and... You know, but really, it should just be about happiness, physical comfort. You know, it, you know nothing more difficult to attack than somebody who's happy. Mm-hmm. You know, and that relates to what we were just saying about the magic as well. You yeah. know, it's uh, as soon as you're aggressive, it gives people something to hang on to. Mm-hmm. Well, and it possibly puts you off balance, then, right? Well, everything goes to your head. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what you're trying to do is not to let it go there, because that raises your center of balance as well, and you become slow and mm-hmm. tense. Yeah. So it's all it, they're very interrelated in many respects, actually. You know, um, just retaining that open, clear mind rather than being pulled by your emotions all the time. You know. Yeah. So that's yeah, it. And there's many ways to get there. Martial arts is one of them. Meditation works. Mm-hmm. You know, what have you found works, Andrew, for you? Uh, yeah, I mean, meditation. I did martial arts for a long time. Martial arts was a good road for getting over being angry to me. Yeah. Um, you know, I sort of worked through my anger there in an environment where I could sort of explore power dynamics very openly. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, just, you know, Returning, uh, you know, returning my attention 
back always to like I don't know how to put it so there's you know there, there's that transcendent sort of samadhi kind of loss of attachment to yourself and your daily life yeah. you know so so that piece of it combined with um just very practical cultivation of of self and a sustainable life right like just what do i need what do i need to do where am i showing up where do i feel i'm lacking why do i feel i'm lacking there is there something yeah. i actually need and just you know kind of cycling through those those different patterns of uh i guess growth oriented questions and uh, you know it's uh it does wonders for uh removing removing unhelpful hungers and um you know and, and sort of recognizing the own in, my own internal bullshit for what it is which then well, allows me to like, show up more right yeah there's nothing like a, a good bit of bullshit within ourselves as well you know there's many things that we can pull on yeah. yeah there's many there's many there's many advantages to these things but it's just knowing what they are is mm -hmm. the difficulty and not being led by them you know yeah. and i'm sure you'd agree that when we get you know when you get past the monkey mind, as they call it here, yeah, um, you know the relation. Your relationship with time changes. Your relationship with people changes. Mm -hmm. You know the way you can sit with people changes. The way yeah. you know the joy of life changes, and and the way in which people receive you changes, right? Completely. Because when you yeah. when you show up and you're genuinely present with other people. They feel that, you know, yeah. and if you have, you know, uh, if you want to call it meta, it's not really a word I would use, but, um, you know, but compassion or, you know, those that sort of openness to other people and seeing them for who they are without judgments or overt attachments. That's a completely different dynamic, right? That goes to completely. a completely different place than, you know, when you show up and you're just like, oh, my God, I so need this or that or whatever from you. Right. Well, it's also, you know, I mean. I, I'm very lucky to be able to go anywhere in Thailand, literally mm -hmm. anywhere. Yeah. You know, I mean, my, my partner's family who were there a few months ago, and I said, oh, I'm going to go to Saratburi because I want to photograph this particular shrine for the book. Mm -hmm. And I said, where's the uh, bus go from, the minibus? She said, oh, from there. And so I got up at like four o'clock. I got the five o'clock bus. I was there by half past six. Um, the driver dropped me off as close as he could to the temple. Ten seconds later, a motorbike boy came up, took me to the temple. We had a quick bit of breakfast together, which I paid for, of course. It was very mm -hmm. nice. Uh, then I did the photographs. He waited for me. He drove me back. I jumped on the next minibus, which arrived seconds later, and I arrived back at, in Bangkok and went back to family home in about four hours, three and uh -huh. a half hours. And the response was, how have you done that? Right. How? Yeah, I said, well, it just kind of happens if you... Just connect to people. Mm -hmm. You know, he's not the driver of a minibus. He's a man who's having to get through a day and hopefully support his family, you know? Mm -hmm. He's not just a motorbike guy. He might be an older man who's had a very interesting life and you treat him with some respect. Mm -hmm. and, you For know, sure. you, look, you look people in the eye. You make those connections. Yeah. When, you uh, open your when I was in India, um, I wanted to go to uh, Bodh Gaya, where the Buddha was mm. enlightened, or sorry, where the Buddha yeah. first uh, preached the Dharma, right? And yeah. um, and uh, you know, and I want, so I wanted to go to these places, um, but there's no, there's nothing there, right? They're just temples. It's just a city of temples and a few restaurants and things to support people, uh, but yeah. nobody, I don't think people really live there or whatever. And there's definitely no trains or whatever so i arrived in the in the nearest city and um which wasn't that far away but there was this huge strike there that day and yeah. uh and i was trying to find somebody who'd be willing to take me because i was only there for a day because i left it till sort of towards the end of my trip and i was trying to kind of hit a couple important places and uh two things happened which remind me exactly of this conversation um so one was i was walking down the street and it was uh, a long street with um, a big uh, park and government building, I think, on the other side. And it was just this mm -hmm. huge fence that ran along this massive park all the way along. There was no easy way. There were no gates. You would have to climb it. 
And it was all houses on the other side and all the houses were basically attached and there's no roads or alleys or whatever. And I'm like mid block. And then I hear this huge <laughs> ruckus and the people who are protesting are coming down the street and there's just this mob of people with sticks and signs and they're yelling and screaming and whatever. And, uh, and like I look at the, the crowd and I turn around and I look and there's this gentleman standing in his door and I just look at him and I, I point at myself and I point inside his house and he's just like, yes, like just wave with his hands like, yes, come in my house. <laughs> yeah. And so we go in his house, he closes the door, we wait for everybody to pass. And he had no English, you know, and my Hindi is, is not particularly, you know, I knew a few things like hello, thank you and whatever. And, um, and we just waited in his house and stood there and looked at each other very, very pleasantly and peacefully and whatever. And then, you know, when when it was obvious that this the sound had passed and the people were gone, he opened the door and looked out and then he gave me a pat on the back and, you know, sent me on my way. And then a few minutes later, I ran into uh, this guy who was driving a like one of those cycle rickshaws, this really older gentleman. And, and I, got, I just like looked at him and I'm like, I, I want to go here. And he's like, sure. And so he took me and we rode this bicycle through the countryside and stopped at a couple of farms and all these amazing things. And, and then mm. when we got there, uh, on top of paying him for his time, I also bought him lunch. And we just sat there. His, he, had, he also had you know, basically no English. And we just sat there eating together and looking at each other and smiling. And you know, there's such a connection that can happen when you're open to those things. And like well, you say, when you're going for a purpose and when you go in a, with a certain way that road can just open for you right it you just know? happens no. and it really happens because you're not thinking mm -hmm. and by not thinking you're, you're taking away the barriers that people can come that's generally stop people relating to you yeah for sure yeah you know, it's uh i it's it, i've had a remarkable period of time here you know and by uh, especially this last few years, going through the process of doing uh, all this work, mm -hmm. because it just it just happened. Yeah, it's amazing. It just it was just doors kept opening and things kept telling me what to do next, and mm -hmm. um, you know, and then we got to the point where this you know we managed to finish this work. Yeah, and yes, there were bits where it wasn't easy, but it still found a way to be done. Mm -hmm, for sure and you know it's uh, even my partner sometimes says how have you done this mm -hmm. <laughs> you know how have you done it well it kind of just gave me the opportunity to do it and then it kind of did itself yeah yeah they, 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 they meet you halfway you know or more yeah, than halfway did. sometimes right yeah yeah and also, also really been wanting you know I've kind of resisted it for the first God, 20 years of coming here mm -hmm. because that was apparent when I first came over yeah. and it kind of waited until you know uh, until I was ready to kind of do it Yeah. You know? so it's been quite odd and extremely rewarding and rather wonderful mm -hmm. it's fantastic well I mean maybe uh, we, we've been on the phone for a long time here maybe we should wrap this up but for okay because uh, I could talk to you all day. This is a wonderful conversation. So It'd be first nice of all, with a cup of tea and a biscuit. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I'll, I'm, I'll, I'll let you know when I'm going to be in Bangkok or Thailand sometime. You know, we'll, we'll make that yeah, happen. Sure. Um, yeah. For for people who want to check out this book, and and you know, if if this stuff really interests you, and you're you're you know, you really should check out the book. It's quite a it's quite an amazing work. Um, where where do people find you, and where do people find your book? Um, I'm easy found in two places. One is on Facebook through the Tire Cult Books page, uh -huh. and the easiest place to click on the book to find to get to timeless editions would be through the tirecult.com, all one word. Perfect. Tirecult, and uh, there's two book pictures on the front cover. One from the Sat Yam book I did, and the new one on the Tire Cult. Uh, of the two, to be honest, I'm very, very, very proud of the new one. Mm -hmm. The Satyam book, um, yes, we have some superb interviews with the guys, some of the makers in there, uh, but having just produced something really good, 
Um, I'd love to go back and rewrite it. <laughs> isn't, isn't that always the way, right? Isn't that always the well, way? Well, to be honest with you, I don't think I'm going to do. I don't think I'll be in that position with a new one. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I could have made a much better job. To be honest, uh, there's always more that's going to come up. But as a broad taste, as a buffet mm-hmm. uh, of the tire cult, I don't think it would be difficult to do a better job than this, in my opinion. Perfect. Yeah. Well, go and go and check it out and uh, and support Peter's work. And uh, you know, uh, thanks for being on, Peter. And thanks to everybody as always for listening. It's been lovely. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you as always for listening, folks. Uh, we've got some great interviews coming up to round out the rest of the year. And as always, uh, every share and every support of the Patreon is deeply appreciated. It helps keep this project running, and it helps spread the word and make it accessible to everybody. And we'll see you in two weeks with another episode.